This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. I'm excited to start a new series this morning. We're just going to do a two-part series here. Today I'm going to talk about communion, and then next week we're going to talk about baptism. A lot of people wonder, you know, what does our church believe on that, and what, um, uh, as a believer, someone who is a disciple of Christ, what should I be believing on that? Well, let's clear this up first and foremost before we get into anything today, that God's Word is truth. God's Word is truth, right? So we always need to be willing to give up what we have known or what we have come to believe for the truth. In other words, if we see in the Scripture that our belief is wrong or we've been thinking wrong, then somebody's got to give, and normally God wins that tug of war, right? Not our way of thinking, not our tradition, not what we grew up knowing. We need to instead weigh everything that we've come to believe in light of the Word of God, because that is the established, ultimate, absolute truth. And when we truly will look at the Word of God in that way, the truth will set us free. And we'll find out that if we go to war on the things that we grew up thinking, or things we grew up believing, or things we grew up that were taught to us, then what we're going to do is we're actually going to be warring against Scripture if we see otherwise in Scripture. So Scripture trumps what I think, right? So I may be coming into a teaching like this with a certain mentality based on the environment that I was exposed to as a child or as an adult or what have you, but if the Word of God sheds light on that, then I have to be willing to give up what I believe for the truth. And Jesus said this, if we open up our heart to truth, what did he say about the truth? That it will set us free, amen? So the truth is going to set us free. So before we go into the Word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I just thank you for the honor and the opportunity to be able to share your truth with our church family today. God, I thank you for everyone who is here. I believe that they're not here by happenstance. I don't believe that they're here um, just because uh, they felt like coming to church today. I believe that it was a divine appointment that you, by your Holy Spirit, drew them to this place together today for a divine purpose. And I pray, God, that what happens in their hearts and minds today and in their lives, God, will be ordered and directed by you and not manipulated by man. I pray that your word will be spoken with truth and clarity and with authority and with power and with passion, Father. I pray that the hearts of the people will be softened and that they will be able to receive this truth, God, as that seed that's going to be planted in their heart that's going to produce a great and mighty harvest in their life that's going to affect them and that's going to affect those around them. Lord, do a transformation in our hearts and lives today to where it will bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at what is traditionally known as the Last Supper and what Jesus did here in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we'll start reading in verse 7. You can also follow along on the YouVersion app by going to the live section of that app. If you have an iPhone or a smartphone or a tablet or something with you um, this morning, go in there and just look for a live version, uh, the, the, the live portion of that uh, on the menu, and you should be able to find Word of Grace and follow along in the notes as well. Luke 22 and verse 7. Let's read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, 
where do you want us to prepare? Jesus said, behold, when you enter to the city, a man is going to meet you. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that guy into his house where he enters. Verse 11, then you'll say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and they found it just as Jesus told them, and they prepared for the Passover. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles were with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you now, we um, if you've been around church um, very long, you have been a part of a communion service, and you've heard those scriptures read, and maybe you haven't fully understood exactly what it is that you're doing, but you know it has something to do with Jesus, and you know it's something that God wants us to do, and something that He instituted. So, what is this thing that we call communion? Well, Jesus instituted the Last Supper, or what we refer to as Holy Communion, during the feast of Passover. Now, the Last Supper took place hours before Jesus' crucifixion. Now, what they were doing here, you realize the disciples knew what was going on. It wasn't some shocker, like, what are we going to do? They knew this because this was a traditional Jewish meal that they would have during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So as they were having this Passover meal, this Passover feast, this was a part of it. And this is what is traditionally known as a Seder, or a Passover observance in traditional Jewish culture. Now, previously, the feast symbols had always pointed back to the Hebrews' redemption in Egypt. That's where Moses and Exodus gave instruction. But that Thursday night, Jesus revealed the significance of the bread and wine. So this was not something new that had just happened. These guys had been having this meal for centuries because this was always happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And all these things in, in, in this meal were all very, very symbolic. If you know much about the Jewish culture, you'll know that everything in their culture is extremely and highly symbolic. The days, the feasts, um, the times of the year... Uh, numbers, all sorts of things in Jewish culture are very symbolic. So they weren't just eating bread and they weren't just drinking wine. No, all of these things had heavy symbolism as well as other things that they would do in this Passover meal or the Seder. Now, in a Seder, a cloth bag with separate compartments would hold three sheets of matzah bread or unleavened bread. The middle matzah was always removed and split. And it was broken and distributed. The other half of it was wrapped in a napkin and hidden and brought back after someone goes to find it. Now, breaking the bread, Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. Now, in Scripture, leaven symbolizes sin. So you see they're eating unleavened bread. So bread without yeast represents in the Jewish culture a holy God because it is without yeast, okay? And then we see here that um, in the divided bag, the matzahs were 
three, they were unified but very distinct, symbolizing this picture of the Trinity. The middle bread being the Son, the one who left his Father's side to dwell among us, as Galatians 4 and 4 says. It was broken for mankind and then wrapped in a burial cloth and hidden in the tomb, and then you find it or it's resurrected. Our, our, our redemption was indeed costly. This was a picture of man's redemption. Now, wine was the other symbol that Jesus highlighted. In a Seder, it's poured out four times, all right? So there's four different uh, times that they would pour out this wine. Now, scholars believe that the third cup is the one that Jesus shared with his disciples because that is traditionally known as the cup of redemption because he passed around the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And as Jesus passed this cup, many believe that was the cup of redemption. Now, all of this symbolism was very important to the Jewish culture, connecting them back to the redemption from Egyptian slavery, because the Hebrews were in Egyptian slavery for over 400 years. And then God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who was a type and shadow of Jesus, a type and shadow of the one who was to come. So as you would hear this story, and the story was passed down from generation to generation about how God delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians, who had been their slave masters, for some 400 years, there's kids that grew up knowing nothing but slavery. This was all they were ever exposed to. There were grandchildren growing up, nothing but slavery. And then they, they never knew what freedom was. And then God delivers his people out of the hand of the Egyptians, right? We've all seen Charlton Heston, right? Uh, Ten Commandments. Well, it happened a little differently than that. But at the same time, you get the idea. Moses came and God, God led the children of Israel out of the hand of their Egyptian oppressors. And this was a great thing that they would always continue to remember and celebrate. One of the things that I love about the Jewish culture, one of the things I absolutely love about it, and I think we could learn a thing or two, is that they understand the weight and significance of what God has done. They remember it. They always want to remember what God has done so they can also not just stay stuck in the past, but so they can look forward to what he also promised he was going to do. It's symbols of his faithfulness in the past, but yet it's also a type and shadow of the things that are to come. And here is Jesus showing the disciples who grew up having a Seder every time that the Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen. This was something these guys grew up. Maybe they were the kid that found the broken piece, and they never understood the full meaning of it. And here's Jesus showing, this is what all this means, guys. This is what all this is for. I am the fulfillment of all of these things. You know that bread that you have been having your entire life, that you've been having this, this Seder? You know that matzah bread? Well, guess what? The one in the middle, guess what? It's me. Take this and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Could you imagine the weight of that knowing that you had grown up doing that? I mean, to us, we grew up understanding, if you grew up in church, you grew up understanding that, you know, this was the body of Christ and, 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 and that was broken for us, and you heard that. But they had never heard that before. This is the first time that Jesus shows them what those symbols they grew up and all of those traditions actually meant. And everything was pointing to Jesus as the Savior. And that's what communion is meant to do. Communion is meant to point us to Jesus. It's meant to point us to the ultimate sacrifice that has redeemed us, that has redeemed us for all of our sin, for our rejection of God. And communion is meant to strengthen and unify the church through reminding us of where our salvation comes from. Amen, somebody? 
You see, it reminds us that it's not about us. It's not something we accomplish on our own. It's not something we figured out because we're so smart or we're so good or we're so holy. No, it actually shows us His perfection, His holiness, and it strengthens us and unifies us as His body because it reminds us, oh yeah, that's where our help comes from. Not from ourselves, but from Jesus Christ alone. And when we have that shared value, that shared need, that shared understanding of who Christ is, it brings unity and strength to the body of Christ, and it glorifies God. And ultimately, that's what communion is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring us together. It's not one of those things that that is supposed to divide us. It's not one of those things that we're supposed to get all up in arms about. It's meant to unify. But the enemy loves to try to use the things that are meant to glorify God to wedge division in, doesn't he? He loves to do that. He loves to take those things that were meant to glorify God and try to drive wedges in the body of Christ. What did Jesus say about the church? What did he say about all the people as he was looking over them? He began to weep. He said, Father, make them one as we are one. Bring them together because Jesus knows the power of unity. He understands that he wants his body, he wants his church to be a unified church. But then the enemy tries to come along and drive wedges and Even though we see those things apparently in our culture today, it was no different in the early church as well. Paul dealt with this. If you have your Bible, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, another famous passage of Scripture that people use when they observe the Lord's Supper. But if you look at it in context, there's actually something else going on that Paul is addressing to the church in Corinth. Paul is actually addressing division over communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's really Paul just going... Wow. Listen up, fellas. You guys need to get this stuff straight because you're missing the point. And this is what Paul's doing to the church in Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, he's talking about conduct of the Lord's Supper. He says, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Uh-oh. Never good when Paul says that. I don't praise you since you come together for the better. But actually, when you come together, it's actually worse guys are actually making a mess. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I am hearing that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Paul said, I normally don't believe hearsay, but you know what? I believe it about you guys. I'm believing what I'm hearing. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So there are certain people that are approved and certain people that are disapproved. Verse 20 says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One's hungry and another one's drunk. So somebody doesn't have anything and somebody's got way too much. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So therefore, Paul says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is going to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat 
of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have passed away. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if another is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So he's like, if you can't get this stuff straightened out, I'm coming. And the rest of this I'm going to straighten out when I get there. So here's Paul giving them a strong chastisement. I know a lot of times we read 1 Corinthians 11 and we just read 24 and 25 and, and uh, maybe a little further down. But if you look at it in context, you go, wow, Paul was jacking these guys up. Paul was getting on these guys' case because there was obviously an issue. You see, in verse 27, Paul says, don't eat in an unworthy manner and to examine ourselves. He begins talking about that. Now, he was addressing the issue of pride and division in the church in Corinth because obviously we can see that the church in Corinth was made up of factions. And if you read earlier in 1 Corinthians, you'll see what some of those factions are. It's mainly socioeconomic divisions that were in the church based on who had money and who didn't. Here's the rich people, here's the poor people. All the rich people hang out, all the poor people hang out, and we don't associate because the poor people are mad at the rich people because they have money. The rich people think they're better than the poor people because they do have money and everyone else is just poor and lazy and can't get their act together. And there's the two divisions you've got in the church. You've got these two different classes in the church, and they're battling with one another based on the fact, well, if you were really spiritual, you would have enough money set aside to make sure that you had the wine and the bread that you need. So we can just do all this at home because we got plenty. Matter of fact, we're just going to take all of this ourselves. And they had all this wine, and Paul said, you're drunk. And another guy, he's not getting a drink at all. He said, one guy's full and the other guy's hungry. What in the world is going on? He said, you guys are missing the point. You see, the wealthy would treat the act of communion as if it were just meant for them. And they would drink all their wine and eat all their bread at home in order to show themselves more spiritual. Because if I can have more communion, it's almost like I'm tanking up on communion, you know. I'm just tanking up, buddy. I'm tanking up. Oh, I've got all this. Look at how spiritual I am. They equated what they could afford and what they could take as spiritual, and there was none left for anyone else. Well, we can afford to do those things. And so it was very much a dividing thing. I remember when I was a little kid, we, uh, we, we grew up in a church where um, we had the loaf of bread where you would, you know, everybody pinched off of it. That's where everybody freaked out about germs and stuff. And Germex, Germex, you know. And <laughs> everybody's like, you know, pinching off of the loaf of bread. And then us kids, when communion was over, um, my mom was on the worship team and my dad taught children's church, so I got special privileges in the church. Um, we'd always sneak back and see if there's any bread left over. And us kids would take all that bread. And so what we used to do as kids, and we would get full on that bread, you know, oh, I'm good, you know. I'm, I'm, and, and I get a picture of these guys who are eating all this bread as us kids going back there and just eating all that stuff. But they would do it beforehand to where there was none left over for everybody else. These guys were very prideful, and there was a lot of division in the church amongst other things as well. But because they were eating and drinking and they were shaming those who did not do as they did, they became sick. And actually, they even died. Some of them even died because of this. It, it wasn't because uh, of, of any uh, unconfessed sin that they had in their life necessarily as much as they were not treating the body and blood of the Lord as holy and as sacred as what it should have been treated. Eating and drinking in a worthy manner doesn't mean that you somehow make yourself worthy because we know the Bible says our righteousness is like what? 
filthy rags, right? We know the Bible says that we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. So it's not something that I do in order to make myself worthy because in the eyes of God, I could never be worthy. It's Jesus who made me right and made me worthy and made me acceptable in the eyes of God. Amen? Not anything I accomplished. It's not like I've achieved some great feat by my own works. No, it's all about Jesus. So therefore, what does it mean to eat this in a worthy manner? To eat and drink in a worthy manner simply means this. You ready for this? It means to attribute full worth to Christ's work of redemption. That's what it means. It means that we're attributing the full worth of what we're doing. That we're not taking it as a way to become more spiritual than someone. That we're not taking it in a way uh, other than what it was meant for. And that we're attributing the full weight of the redemptive work of Christ when we take that, that we understand the weight of it. I think a lot of times in church especially, when we get ritualistic with anything, sometimes those things can lose their weight because we put more weight in the ritual than we do in the why behind why we do the ritual. And we think that everything has to be done this way and you have to hold your mouth just right and stand up at this time and do this just right and just stand just right. And if we don't do it just right, then you're not as good as me because look at how good I do it. And when we act that way, we put more weight in the ritual than we do the significance of why we even do it in the first place. That's what Paul's talking about. Are you mixing up the actual weight and why behind what you're doing? Are you mixing it up with the fact that you can do it so well and you've mastered this and oh, look at how good I do it and oh man, I sure hope you figured it out because I am a professional communion taker, buddy. <laughs> That's what Paul's addressing here. He's saying if you're doing that, you're not giving full weight to what Christ did on the cross. You're making it all about you, and you're making it something that you're attributing your spirituality to because of how well you do it or how much you do it or how often that you do it. You see, this was something that they did once a year when they would get together for this feast, and now they're just understanding the weight and significance of it because of what Jesus revealed to them. He's saying, listen, this is something I want you to do in remembrance of me. So as we look at that and as we see how the enemy would love to divide people, we have to see, okay, what does Scripture say here? Because what is the purpose of it? Well, here's the purpose of receiving Holy Communion. It is a reminder to teach us that the work of Jesus alone saves us. That's what it is. It is a reminder for us, the church, to remember that it is the work of Jesus alone that saves us. How tempted are we as humans who are driven by our flesh sometimes, that we're driven to make it something about us, make it about ourselves, when it's actually supposed to deflect the attention off of us and onto Christ. Because I can't save myself, no matter how I hold the cup, no matter what kind of cup I take it out of. We use plastic cups here with a little tab that frustrates you sometimes. I get it. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that it's any less special than a certain chalice or anything like that. It's not that that brings the weight to the communion. It doesn't matter the fact that, you know, we have the little square bread and some people have the big giant circle bread. Some people, like the way I grew up, we had the bread where everybody pinched off. I've, I've taken communion before in other countries where we had some saltine crackers that were all... Oh, I'll tell you a story real quick. We had... Uh, <laughs> You could tell something just went off in my brain. Uh, 
I took my youth group when I was a youth pastor um, in, uh, in Arkansas. I took, I took those guys to an event in Texas. It was called the Sacred Cry, and it was one of these really super spiritual youth events. Oh, and I loved those as a youth pastor. It was one where you had to fast for three days, and we saw other youth groups going out to McDonald's and stuff like that. Not my youth group, buddy. We were going to fast for three days. <laughs> three days. We did not eat anything, and when the communion plate was passed, they had crumbled up crackers, and I had kids that were searching for the biggest piece. Everybody was going... Let me look in there. Um, you got any full ones? I'm feeling really spiritual today. <laughs> and those kids told me. They said, man, we were so hungry. We were, we were looking for the biggest cracker when the communion plate was passed. <laughs> Just being real. Just being real. But it's something that we need to always understand the weight behind what we're doing. So let's see what Jesus said here in John chapter 6 and verse 47. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 47, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Stop right there. Who has everlasting life? He who believes in Jesus, right? Criteria for salvation, criteria for eternal life is what? Believing in Jesus. Amen? All right, let's establish this before we go any further. All right? Criteria for salvation, criteria for eternal life, is believing in Jesus. That He is the Son of God, that He lived that perfect sinless life, was born of a virgin, died on the cross for you and me, taking the penalty that was deserved by you and me because of our sin, but instead He took our place out of His great love, out of His grace, and our faith in that redemptive act is what makes us right with God. That's why Romans 1 and 17 says that the just shall live by faith. Right? If we're justified, which is a positional statement. I am justified. I am made just in the eyes of God. I am made right in the eyes of God. I can't do it on my own. I can't earn it on my own. It only comes through faith in the redemptive work of Christ. Amen? That's what we teach, that's what we believe, because that's what we see in Scripture. So here, Jesus makes a definitive statement in verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat it, not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. And I will give the life, and I give for the life of the world. The Jews, they quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, listen, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds upon me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread is going to live forever. Now, let me give you the setting of what Jesus was talking about here. Jesus had just finished feeding the disciples and all of those 5,000 plus people who had been following him with just the five loaves and the two fish. 
All right? Those things multiplied, and there was more than enough, and they collected baskets that were left over because there was so much food, okay? If you feed 5,000-plus people, you're going to be pretty popular. I mean, if we said, hey, we're going to feed 5,000-plus people in Sheboygan Falls today, and we're going to have brats and hard rolls for everybody once, everybody would be jazzed. Everybody would freak out. There would be a line out the door. Super Bowl, what Super Bowl? Football season ended two weeks ago. And they're going to be like, we want a brat and a hard roll. And that's what, man, you would have a huge following. So you could imagine, Jesus has the fish and bread buffet line here with all you can eat for the people who had been listening to his teaching and everybody's really liking Jesus. He's up in the polls. He's doing well. Everybody's really following him. He's got an intense following. Everybody's going, Jesus, we like Jesus. And so they were looking for him. They don't know where he is. He got in a boat and he went somewhere else. And guess what they do? They get in boats and go looking for him. You can read this here earlier in John chapter 6. People actually are chasing Jesus down because now we either ate the bread and ate the fish that Jesus supplied or we heard about it and we want to see what he's going to do next. I mean, bread and fish, that was pretty good. Let's see what he thinks about the steak and, you know, uh, uh, you know how about some of the buns with uh, some of the, the cinnamon butter from, uh, you know, Texas Roadhouse. Let's see if Jesus can make that happen. I mean, um, and they're following him around. They don't know what's going to happen next. They want, to, they, they want to see. And so they're following, looking for a sign. And what are they looking for? They heard about the bread, so they're looking for bread. So they demand a sign of Jesus when they finally catch up with him. Jesus, hey, give us, give us a sign that you are who you say that you are and who everybody's talking about that you are. You know, our ancestors, they ate manna from heaven. How about some more bread? How about you rain some, some bread from heaven if you're really God? And Jesus said, man, your ancestors ate bread in the desert and they died. Oh. He said, you're looking for something to give you eternal life because you know that the Son of Man, you know that the one who's going to come that's going to be the Messiah is going to give you eternal life. You know this. And they did. They knew that. And he said, what I give is going to give you eternal life. He said, and it's not bread. And it's not even bread from heaven. He said, it's me. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I am the bread of life. He said, and unless you take a part of that, then you have no life in you. Now, Jesus was not referring to the act of communion here in this instant. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was saying that we can have no part in him unless we're willing to accept his offering of his blood and his body with the same weight that we would bread and drink. Because the Bible does not teach what is called transubstantiation or the belief that communion saves us by actually becoming the physical bread and uh, actually becoming the physical body and blood of Jesus. Jesus does not teach transubstantiation in John chapter 6. Communion is not going to save you. Let me say that slow so I can say that some more. I want to make sure that gets picked up on the recording. (laughs) Communion is not going to save you. If you put your faith and hope in communion, you are going to be sorely disappointed because it is not drinking some grape juice and eating bread that is going to save you because those things do not become the actual body and bread, uh, um, I mean body and blood of Jesus Christ. They, that's not what happens. That's not what Scripture teaches. 
What scripture does teach, however, is that if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. That salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's where salvation comes from. Now, why do we receive communion? Well, here's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of the one who does save us, and we're taking communion with that same weight of understanding the symbolism of what Christ did on the cross. And it is extremely serious. It's extremely important. It's something that we want to give great weight to. But there are a lot of people who think that just taking a prayed-over cup of wine or juice and a prayed-over piece of bread is going to make them right with God. You see, salvation comes by faith alone. That's why Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me will have everlasting life. He said, you've got to take a part of me. He said, you've got to be a part of me. You want to know some other things Jesus said? He says that unless you share in my sufferings, you'll have no part of me either. Oh, we don't like that because Christianity is supposed to be something that just makes everything better, Right? He said, there's actually going to be some people that hate you in the world. There will be people that will actually reject you. He said, oh, by the way, it's going to be my fault. He said, this is not some wide road. He said, this is a narrow road. He said, this is a path that few find. He said, and it's because it comes by faith and faith alone. Everybody wants to earn and deserve something, but every time you put yourself in the position where you feel earning or deserving of a gift from God... You've made it all about what you have done and not about what he has done. And we cannot make our salvation about something that we do. It is about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Amen? It's to remind us this is not about you. This is not something that you did. John 6 and 63, Jesus later on in that same text and context, he said, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And the words I speak to you are Spirit and they are life. Jesus said, the things that I'm speaking to you, he said, they're Spirit and they're life. He said, because it's only the Spirit who can give life. He said, and the things I'm speaking to you, they should be stirring up your faith. We know Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that was taken out of the context where Paul, writing to the church in Rome, was saying, how are they going to believe in the one in whom they have not heard? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches? How is someone going to preach to them unless they are sent? So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel? He said, and how are they going to... How are they going to grow? How are they going to know? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Jesus said, I'm speaking these words to stir your faith. I'm speaking these words to activate something in you, to let you know that the one you've been looking for, the promised one, is standing before you. You don't need to look to the sky for manna to rain down. He said, you actually need to look to me because you eat the the bread that comes from heaven. He said, you're going to die just like your ancestors. He said, but if you take part of what I am offering to you, which is me. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Communion reminds us that our salvation is through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Amen, church. Ephesians chapter 2. We quote this all the time here at Word of Grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, as I look at communion, bringing weight and seriousness to it, communion is really a heart check. Communion, when taken seriously and with the full weight of Jesus' sacrifice in mind, will check your heart. Where's my faith at? That's why we do it often, in remembrance of Him. That's what Jesus told us to do. So here's the question that communion should always make us ask when we come together as a church family and we receive it together, or whether you do it at home or or, or wherever you may uh, take communion. Am I trusting God for my salvation? Or have I felt like that I have saved myself through all of my spiritual rituals? Or have I felt that I have saved myself through all my good behavior? Have I saved myself through all the good things that I've done? Or communion goes, whoa, wait a minute. Oh yeah, it was the body. It was the blood. Oh my goodness, it was the body that was broken for me. That's right. Because we need that heart check, don't we church? We need that heart check. We need that heart check to remind us and go, wow, it really is all about Jesus. It was his body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. It's his blood that was sprinkled upon the mercy seat where once a year the priest would go in on the day of atonement and he would sprinkle the blood of that spotless lamb to cover the sins of the people. But he would have to go in and do it again the next year. Then he'd have to go in again and do it again the next year. But Jesus, being our high priest, our mediator, entered in once and for all, sprinkled his precious spotless blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the world. And when I think that salvation is somehow about me, when I think that I somehow earned this or did this on my own, I hold in my hand that juice and that bread, and I am reminded in that moment that Jesus paid it all. And that any goodness that flows out of me is a result of Him on the inside of me. And nothing I produced or came up with on my own. Anything that flows out of me that brings glory to God is directly because of what He has poured in me. It is His life, it is His nature that is in me that's flowing out of me to be a testimony to the world of the gospel. It's a testimony to those that are lost and hopeless of what God can do in me and through me. And when I hold in my hand that juice and that bread, it brings me back to going, it's all about you, Jesus. So am I trusting in God for my salvation? Here's a few things that communion do right before we receive communion together. I want if you're, if you're serving this morning, go ahead and get ready. But here's some things that communion does. It humbles our heart by reminding us of the source of our salvation, being the sacrifice of Jesus. It strengthens our faith through reminding ourselves of the gospel and the price that was paid for our right standing with God. It's a testimony of our total dependence on Jesus, who is the bread of life stirs worship in our hearts because the blood of Jesus is the final payment for sin and now the veil between God and man is torn in two and man can be reunited in relationship with a holy God and it's a symbol of Christ's life on the inside of us 
It's a symbol of his life. Him on the inside of us. Communion is not something, listen to me, communion is not something that you do to become a Christian. Salvation and eternal life only comes by faith in Jesus. And communion is to remind us of where our hope, our help, our strength, our salvation comes from. And it's meant to unite us and bring us together in worship and honoring God. That's what it is. I pray that we brought a little bit more weight to that to you today, brought a little bit more clarity. So before we receive communion today, we, we have here at Word of Grace, maybe you came from a tradition where if you weren't a member of that church, you couldn't receive communion. We don't do that here. We have what's called open communion, which means anyone who is here today can receive communion. We only have one prerequisite, and that's that you be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ alone, that He is the only way to the Father. And if you've done that, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. If you have not done that, I want to invite you to do that right now. So I want you to bow your head just in this moment here. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.